Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel. Read for you by Hope Davis. With an appreciation read by Ava DuVernay. A foreword read by the author. And an afterword read by Charlotte Jones Voikless. Appreciation. This is Ava DuVernay. It was a Tuesday, March 15th, 2016. I was in Alabama when it happened, when the world cracked down the middle and everything I knew was split wide open. That was the day my father ascended to another realm. He went home to another place. He became one with the spaces between the stars. Less than a month after the passing of my father, Mr. Murray May, I began pre-production in Los Angeles for a film version of A Wrinkle in Time, which follows a girl who has lost her father. His name is Mr. Murray. To say I began the process of bringing Madeline Langle's beloved novel to life feeling much like her main character, Meg Murray, would be an understatement. I was grieving a sudden disappearance of my father, like Meg. I was angry with things beyond my control, like Meg. I was questioning my place in the grand scheme of things, like Meg. Delving into her journey helped me with my own in ways that healed my broken heart, in ways that make this tender story so dear to me. But I'm far from the only person to have a story of deeply personal ties to Miss Langle's work. Since being announced as the director of a Wrinkle in Time's film adaptation, I've had the great privilege of hearing many stories from people all over the world describing their affection for and connection to Meg's path. The book opened a new world for me, they say. I was Meg, and I felt everything she felt. I've read the book more than a dozen times over the years. I'm reading the book with my kids and making beautiful new discoveries within the pages. There are so many layers that resonate with me even more as an adult. This story saved my life. And across my social media feeds, not only do I find wide and varied reactions to the story of A Wrinkle in Time itself, but a wide and varied group of people offering said reactions. Through profile pictures, I can see who's writing me, and it is a delight. People from every walk of life, every age group, every race and culture. People over 60 years old to 16 years old. People with and without children. Folks in school and people who've never been to school. As with one woman who confided that she taught herself to read at age 27 by using a wrinkle in time. People of all economic backgrounds in every continent of the world. One of the most moving messages came from a 42-year-old man in the Philippines who wrote of how the exploration of the unknown in the book changed his way of viewing his own existence. This is not a kid's book. This book has no limits. But this book is especially meaningful to human beings between the ages of 8 and 12. Because this is a magical story, and those ages are a magical time. A time to discover who we are in our own minds and in our own hearts. A time to listen and learn and think and wonder. A time to start to decide for ourselves how we want to walk through this world. And as we follow Meg's journey, we think about our own. To read A Wrinkle in Time is to join with millions of people around the world, across generations, across decades, who have done just what you are about to do. Open the door to an act of love. 
for that is what Miss Langle has gifted us with, an act of love, a pathway through the darkness, a quest for belonging, a call to action, a step toward bravery, an embrace of self-discovery, an ode to those who are stronger than they know. For me, this book activates both transparency and resistance. It urges us to open ourselves up to those hurts, those tribulations, those disappointments, those doubts, those uncertainties, all of which can be summarized as darkness. It walks us through that pain to a light within ourselves, helping us to resist all that is not for our good and fight for a better way. Simply put, A Wrinkle in Time offers a glimpse of eternity. In her book, A Ring of Endless Light, Miss Langle quoted the 17th century poet, Henry Vaughan. I saw eternity the other night, like a great ring of pure and endless light, all calm as it was bright, and round beneath it, time, in hours, days, years, driven by the spheres. This glimpse of eternity's endless light is what we know as hope and joy and love, Small words for some of the most powerful forces in the universe. Forces that connect us to the spaces between stars and to the best part of ourselves. Hello, this is Amanda Lengel. A Wrinkle in Time is a book that almost never got published. I'd already had half a dozen books published, but... This was a very different one, and nobody knew quite what it was or who it was for. And the general feeling was that it was much too hard for children. Well, my kids were 7, 10, and 12 while I was writing it, and at night I'd read them what I'd written during the day, and they'd say, Oh, Mother, go back to the typewriter. So I knew kids could understand it. The problem is it's not too difficult for kids. It's too difficult for grown-ups. Too many grown-ups tend to put themselves into little rooms with windows that don't open and doors that are locked. And they want to close themselves off from any new ideas. And you're ready and open for new ideas and new things and new places and new excitements. So I hope you'll enjoy this book. I had a wonderful time writing it. For Charles Wadsworth Camp and Wallace Colin Franklin. Chapter 1, Mrs. Watsit. It was a dark and stormy night. In her attic bedroom, Margaret Murray, wrapped in an old patchwork quilt, sat on the foot of her bed and watched the trees tossing in the frenzied lashing of the wind. Behind the trees, clouds scudded frantically across the sky. Every few moments the moon ripped through them creating wraith-like shadows that raced along the ground. The house shook. Wrapped in her quilt, Meg shook. She wasn't usually afraid of weather. It's not just the weather, she thought. It's the weather on top of everything else, on top of me, on top of Meg Murray doing everything wrong. School. School was all wrong. She'd been dropped down to the lowest section in her grade. That morning, one of her teachers had said crossly, Really, Meg, I don't understand how a child with parents as brilliant as yours are supposed to be can be such a poor student. If you don't manage to do a little better, you'll have to stay back next year. During lunch, she'd roughhoused a little to try to make herself feel better, and one of the girls said scornfully, After all, Meg, 
We aren't grammar school kids anymore. Why do you always act like such a baby? And on the way home from school, walking up the road with her arms full of books, one of the boys had said something about her dumb baby brother. At this, she'd thrown the books on the side of the road and tackled him with every ounce of strength she had and arrived home with her blouse torn and a big bruise under one eye. Sandy and Dennis, her ten-year-old twin brothers, who got home from school an hour earlier than she did, were disgusted. Let us do the fighting when it's necessary, they told her. A delinquent. That's what I am, she thought grimly. That's what they'll be saying next. Not mother, but them. Everybody else. I wish father... But it was still not possible to think about her father without the danger of tears. Only her mother could talk about him in a natural way, saying, When your father gets back, gets back from where and when? Surely her mother must know what people were saying, must be aware of the smugly, vicious gossip. Surely it must hurt her as it did Meg. But if it did, she gave no outward sign. Nothing ruffled the serenity of her expression. Why can't I hide it, too? Meg thought. Why do I always have to show everything? The window rattled madly in the wind, and she pulled the quilt close about her. Curled up on one of her pillows, a gray fluff of kitten yawned, showing its pink tongue, tucked its head under again, and went back to sleep. Everybody was asleep. Everybody except Meg. Even Charles Wallace, the dumb baby brother, who had an uncanny way of knowing when she was awake and unhappy, and who would come so many nights, tiptoeing up the attic stairs to her. Even Charles Wallace was asleep. How could they sleep? All day on the radio there had been hurricane warnings. How could they leave her up in the attic in the rickety brass bed, knowing that the roof might be blown right off the house, and she, tossed out into the wild night sky to land who knows where? Her shivering grew uncontrollable. You asked to have the attic bedroom, she told herself savagely. Mother lets you have it because you're the oldest. It's a privilege, not a punishment. Not during a hurricane, it isn't a privilege, she said aloud. She tossed the quilt down on the foot of the bed and stood up. The kitten stretched luxuriously and looked up at her with huge, innocent eyes. Go back to sleep, Meg said. Just be glad you're a kitten and not a monster like me. She looked at herself in the wardrobe mirror and made a horrible face, bearing a mouthful of teeth covered with braces. Automatically, she pushed her glasses into position, ran her fingers through her mouse-brown hair so that it stood wildly on end, and let out a sigh almost as noisy as the wind. The wide wooden floorboards were cold against her feet. Wind blew in the crevices about the window frame, in spite of the protection the storm sash was supposed to offer. She could hear wind howling in the chimneys. From all the way downstairs, she could hear Fortinbras, the big black dog, starting to bark. He must be frightened, too. What was he barking at? Fortinbras never barked without reason. Suddenly she remembered that when she had gone to the post office to pick up the mail, she'd heard about a tramp who was supposed to have stolen twelve sheets from Mrs. Buncombe, the constable's wife. They hadn't caught him. And maybe he was heading for the Murray's house right now, 
isolated on a back road as it was, and this time, maybe he'd be after more than sheets. Meg hadn't paid much attention to the talk about the tramp at the time, because the postmistress, with a sugary smile, had asked if she'd heard from her father lately. She left her little room, and made her way through the shadows of the main attic, bumping against the ping-pong table. Now I'll have a bruise on my hip on top of everything else, she thought. Next, she walked into her old doll's house, Charles Wallace's rocking horse, the twins' electric trains. Why must everything happen to me, she demanded of a large teddy bear. At the foot of the attic stairs, she stood still and listened. Not a sound from Charles Wallace's room on the right. On the left, in her parents' room. Not a rustle from her mother, sleeping alone in the great double bed. She tiptoed down the hall and into the twins' room, pushing again at her glasses, as though they could help her to see better in the dark. Dennis was snoring. Sandy murmured something about baseball and subsided. The twins didn't have any problems. They weren't great students, but they weren't bad ones either. They were perfectly content with a succession of B's and an occasional A or C. They were strong and fast runners and good at games. And when cracks were made about anybody in the Murray family, they weren't made about Sandy and Dennis. She left the twins' room and went on downstairs, avoiding the creaking seventh step. Fortinbras had stopped barking. It wasn't the tramp this time, then. Fort would go on barking if anybody was around. But suppose the tramp does come. Suppose he has a knife. Nobody lives near enough to hear if we screamed and screamed and screamed. Nobody care, anyhow. I'll make myself some cocoa, she decided. That'll cheer me up. And if the roof blows off, at least I won't go off with it. In the kitchen, a light was already on. And Charles Wallace was sitting at the table drinking milk and eating bread and jam. He looked very small and vulnerable sitting there alone in the big old-fashioned kitchen. A blonde little boy in faded blue Dr. Denton's, his feet swinging a good six inches above the floor. Hi, he said cheerfully. I've been waiting for you. From under the table where he was lying at Charles Wallace's feet, hoping for a crumb or two, Fortinbras raised his slender dark head in greeting to Meg, and his tail thumped against the floor. Fortinbras had arrived on their doorstep, a half-grown puppy, scrawny and abandoned, one winter night. He was, Meg's father had decided, part Llewellyn Setter and part Greyhound, and he had a slender, dark beauty that was all his own. Why didn't you come up to the attic? Meg asked her brother, speaking as though he were at least her own age. I've been scared stiff. Too windy up in that attic of yours, the little boy said. I knew you'd be down. I put some milk on the stove for you. It ought to be hot by now. How did Charles Wallace always know about her? How could he always tell? He never knew or seemed to care what Dennis or Sandy were thinking. It was his mother's mind and makes that he probed with frightening accuracy. Was it because people were a little afraid of him that they whispered about the Murray's youngest child, who was rumored to be not quite bright? I've heard that clever people often have subnormal children, Meg had once overheard. The two boys seemed to be nice, regular children, but that unattractive girl and the baby boy certainly aren't all there. It was true. 
that Charles Wallace seldom spoke when anybody was around, so that many people thought he'd never learn to talk, and it was true that he hadn't talked at all until he was almost four. Meg would turn white with fury when people looked at him and clucked, shaking their heads sadly. Don't worry about Charles Wallace, Meg, her father had once told her. Meg remembered it very clearly, because it was shortly before he went away. There's nothing the matter with his mind. He just does things in his own way and in his own time. I don't want him to grow up to be dumb like me, Meg had said. Oh, my darling, you're not dumb, her father answered. You're like Charles Wallace. Your development has to go at its own pace. It just doesn't happen to be the usual pace. How do you know? Meg had demanded. How do you know I'm not dumb? Isn't it just because you love me? I love you, but that's not what tells me. Mother and I have given you a number of tests, you know. Yes, that was true. Meg had realized that some of the games her parents played with her were tests of some kind, and that there had been more for her and Charles Wallace than for the twins. IQ tests, you mean? Yes, some of them. Is my IQ okay? More than okay. What is it? That I'm not going to tell you, but it assures me that both you and Charles Wallace will be able to do pretty much whatever you like when you grow up to yourselves. You just wait till Charles Wallace starts to talk, you'll see. How right he had been about that. Though he himself had left before Charles Wallace began to speak, suddenly, with none of the usual baby preliminaries, using entire sentences. How proud he would have been. You'd better check the milk, Charles Wallace said to Meg now, his diction clearer and cleaner than that of most five-year-olds. You know you don't like it when it gets a skin on top. You put in more than twice enough milk, Meg peered into the saucepan. Charles Wallace nodded serenely. I thought Mother might like some. I might like what? A voice said, and there was their mother, standing in the doorway. Coco, Charles Wallace said. Would you like a little Worston cream cheese sandwich? I'll be happy to make you one. That would be lovely. Mrs. Murray said, but I can make it myself if you're busy. No trouble at all. Charles Wallace slid down from his chair and trotted over to the refrigerator, his pajamaed feet padding softly as a kitten's. How about you, Meg? He asked. Sandwich? Yes, please, she said, but not liverwurst. Do we have any tomatoes? Charles Wallace peered into the crisper. One. All right, if I use it on Meg, mother. To what better use could it be put? Mrs. Murray smiled. But not so loud, please, Charles. That is, unless you want the twins downstairs, too. Let's be exclusive, Charles Wallace said. That's my new word for the day. Impressive, isn't it? Prodigious, Mrs. Murray said. Meg, come let me look at that bruise. Meg knelt at her mother's feet. The warmth and light of the kitchen had relaxed her so that her attic fears were gone. The cocoa steamed fragrantly in the saucepan. Geraniums bloomed on the windowsills, and there was a bouquet of tiny yellow chrysanthemums in the center of the table. The curtains, red with a blue and green geometrical pattern, were drawn and seemed to reflect their cheerfulness throughout the room. The furnace purred like a great sleepy animal. The lights glowed with steady radiance. Outside, 
alone in the dark. The wind still battered against the house, but the angry power that had frightened Meg while she was alone in the attic was subdued by the familiar comfort of the kitchen. Underneath Mrs. Murray's chair, Fordenborough let out a contented sigh. Mrs. Murray gently touched Meg's bruised cheek. Meg looked up at her mother, half in loving admiration, half in sullen resentment. It was not an advantage to have a mother who was a scientist and a beauty as well. Mrs. Murray's flaming red hair, creamy skin, and violet eyes with long dark lashes seemed even more spectacular in comparison with Meg's outrageous plainness. Meg's hair had been passable as long as she wore it tidily in braids. When she went into high school, it was cut, and now she and her mother struggled with putting it up, but one side would come out curly and the other straight, so that she looked even plainer than before. You don't know the meaning of moderation, do you, my darling? Mrs. Murray asked. A happy medium is something I wonder if you'll ever learn. That's a nasty bruise the Henderson boy gave you. By the way, shortly after you'd gone to bed, his mother called up to complain about how badly you'd hurt him. I told her that since he's a year older and at least 25 pounds heavier than you are, I thought I was the one who ought to be doing the complaining. But she seemed to think it was all your fault. I suppose that depends on how you look at it, Meg said. Usually, no matter what happens, people think it's my fault, even if I have nothing to do with it at all. But I'm sorry I tried to fight him. It's just been an awful week, and I'm full of bad feeling. Mrs. Murray stroked Meg's shaggy head. Do you know why? I hate being an oddball, Meg said. It's hard on Sandy and Dennis, too. I don't know if they're really like everybody else or if they're just able to pretend they are. I try to pretend, but it isn't any help. You're much too straightforward to be able to pretend to be what you aren't, Mrs. Murray said. I'm sorry, Maglet. Maybe if father were here, he could help you. But I don't think I can do anything till you've managed to plow through some more time. Then things will be easier for you. But that isn't much help right now, is it? Maybe if I weren't so repulsive looking. Maybe if I were pretty like you. Mother's not a bit pretty. She's beautiful, Charles Wallace announced, slicing liverwurst. Therefore, I bet she was awful at your age. How right you are, Mrs. Murray said. Just give yourself time, Meg. Lettuce on your sandwich, Mother? Charles Wallace asked. No, thanks. He cut the sandwich into sections, put it on a plate, and set it in front of his mother. Yours will be along in just a minute, Meg. I think I'll talk to Mrs. Watsit about you. Who's Mrs. Watsit? Meg asked. I think I want to be exclusive about her for a while, Charles Wallace said. Onion salt? Yes, please. What's Mrs. Watsit stand for? Mrs. Murray asked. That's her name, Charles Wallace answered. You know the old shingled house back in the woods that the kids won't go near because they say it's haunted? That's where they live. They? Mrs. Watsit and her two friends. I was out with Fortinbras a couple of days ago. You and the twins were at school, Meg. We like to walk in the woods, and suddenly he took off after a squirrel, and I took off after him, and we ended up by the haunted house, so I met them by accident, as you might say. But nobody lives there, Meg said. Mrs. Watsit and her friends do. 
They're very enjoyable. Why didn't you tell me about it before? Mrs. Murray asked. And you know you're not supposed to go off our property without permission, Charles. I know, Charles said. That's one reason I didn't tell you. I just rushed off after Fortinbras without thinking. And then I decided, well, I better save them for an emergency anyhow. A fresh gust of wind took the house and shook it, and suddenly the rain began to lash against the windows. I don't think I like this wind, Meg said nervously. We'll lose some shingles off the roof, that's certain, Mrs. Murray said. But this house has stood for almost 200 years, and I think it will last a little longer, Meg. There's been many a high wind up on this hill. But this is a hurricane, Meg wailed. The radio kept saying it was a hurricane. It's October, Mrs. Murray told her. There have been storms in October before. As Charles Wallace gave Meg her sandwich, Fordenbrock came out from under the table. He gave a long, low growl, and they could see the dark fur slowly rising on his back. Meg felt her own skin prickle. What's wrong? she asked anxiously. Fortinbras stared at the door that opened into Mrs. Murray's laboratory, which was in the old stone dairy right off the kitchen. Beyond the lab, a pantry led outdoors, though Mrs. Murray had done her best to train the family to come into the house through the garage door, or the front door, and not through her lab. But it was a lab door and not the garage door toward which Fortinbras was growling. You didn't leave any nasty-smelling chemicals cooking over a Bunsen burner, did you, Mother? Charles Wallace asked. Mrs. Murray stood up. No, but I think I'd better go see what's upsetting Fort, anyhow. It's the tramp. I'm sure it's the tramp, Meg said nervously. What tramp? Charles Wallace asked. They were saying at the post office this afternoon that a tramp stole all Mrs. Buncombe's sheets. We'd better sit on the pillowcases, then, Mrs. Murray said lightly. I don't think even a tramp would be out on a night like this, Meg. But that's probably why he is out, Meg wailed, trying to find a place not to be out. In which case, I'll offer him the barn till morning. Mrs. Murray went briskly to the door. I'll go with you, Meg's voice was shrill. No, Meg, you stay with Charles and eat your sandwich. Eat, Meg exclaimed as Mrs. Murray went out through the lab. How does she expect me to eat? Mother can take care of herself, Charles said. Physically, that is... But he sat in his father's chair at the table, and his legs kicked at the rungs. And Charles Wallace, unlike most small children, had the ability to sit still. After a few moments that seemed like forever to Meg, Mrs. Murray came back in, holding the door open for, was it the tramp? It seemed small for Meg's idea of a tramp. The age or sex was impossible to tell, for it was completely bundled up in clothes. Several scarves of assorted colors were tied about the head, and a man's felt hat perched atop. A shocking pink stole was knotted about a rough overcoat, and black rubber boots covered the feet. Mrs. Watsit, Charles said suspiciously, what are you doing here, and at this time of night, too? Now don't you be worried, my honey, a voice emerged from among turned-up coat collar, stole, scarves, and hat. A voice like an unoiled gate, but somehow not unpleasant. Mrs. Uh, What's-it says she lost her way, 
Mrs. Murray said. Would you care for some hot chocolate, Mrs. Watson? Charmed, I'm sure, Mrs. Watson answered, taking off the hat in the stall. It isn't so much that I lost my way as that I got blown off course. And when I realized that I was at little Charles Wallace's house, I thought I'd just come in and rest a bit before proceeding on my way. How did you know this was Charles Wallace's house? Meg asked. By the smell. Mrs. Watson untied a blue and green paisley scarf, a red and yellow flowered print, a gold liberty print, a red and black bandana. Under all this, a sparse quantity of grayish hair was tied in a small but tidy knot on top of her head. Her eyes were bright, her nose a round, soft blob, her mouth puckered like an autumn apple. My, but it's lovely and warm in here, she said. Do sit down, Mrs. Murray indicated a chair. Would you like a sandwich, Mrs. Watson? I've had liverwurst and cream cheese, Charles has had bread and jam, and Meg lettuce and tomato. Now let me see, Mrs. Watson pondered. I'm passionately fond of Russian caviar. You peaked, Charles Wallace cried indignantly. We're saving that for Mother's birthday and you can't have any. Mrs. Watson gave a deep and pathetic sigh. No, Charles said. Now you mustn't give in to her mother or I shall be very angry. How about tuna fish salad? All right, Mrs. Watson said meekly. I'll fix it, Meg offered, going to the pantry for a can of tuna fish. For crying out loud, she thought. This old woman comes barging in on us in the middle of the night, and Mother takes it as though there weren't anything peculiar about it at all. I'll bet she is the tramp. I'll bet she did steal those sheets, and she's certainly no one Charles Wallace ought to be friends with, especially when he won't even talk to ordinary people. I've only been in the neighborhood a short time, Mrs. Watson was saying as Meg switched off the pantry light and came back into the kitchen with the tuna fish. And I didn't think I was going to like the neighbors at all until dear little Charles came over with his dog. Mrs. Watson, Charles Wallace demanded severely, why did you take Mrs. Buncombe's sheets? Well, I needed them, Charles, dear. You must return them at once. But, Charles, dear, I can't. I've used them. It was very wrong of you, Charles Wallace scolded. If you needed sheets that badly, you should have asked me. Mrs. Watson shook her head and clucked. You can't spare any sheets. Mrs. Buncombe can. Meg cut up some celery and mixed it in with the tuna. After a moment's hesitation, she opened the refrigerator door and brought out a jar of little sweet pickles. Though why I'm doing it for her, I don't know, she thought as she cut them up. I don't trust her one bit. Tell your sister I'm all right, Mrs. Watson said to Charles. Tell her my intentions are good. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, Charles intoned. My, but isn't he cunning, Mrs. Watson beamed at him fondly. It's lucky he has someone to understand him. But I'm afraid he doesn't, Mrs. Murray said. None of us is quite up to Charles. But at least you aren't trying to squash him down, Mrs. Watson nodded her head vigorously. You're letting him be himself. Here's your sandwich, Meg said, bringing it to Mrs. Watson. Do you mind if I take off my boots before I eat, Mrs. Watson asked. 
picking up her sandwich nevertheless. Listen. She moved her feet up and down in her boots and they could hear water squelching. My toes are ever so damp. The trouble is that these boots are a mite too tight for me and I never can take them off by myself. I'll help you, Charles offered. Not you. You're not strong enough. I'll help. Mrs. Murray squatted at Mrs. Watson's feet, yanking on one slick boot. When the boot came off, it came suddenly. Mrs. Murray sat down with a thump. Mrs. Watson went tumbling backward with the chair onto the floor, sandwich held high in one old claw. Water poured out of the boot and ran over the floor and the big braided rug. Oh, dearie me, Mrs. Watson said, lying on her back in the overturned chair, her feet in the air, one in a red and white striped sock, the other still booted. Mrs. Murray got to her feet. Are you all right, Mrs. Watson? If you have some liniment, I'll put it on my dignity, Mrs. Watson said, still supine. I think it's sprained. A little oil of cloves mixed well with garlic is rather good. And she took a large bite of sandwich. Do please get up, Charles said. I don't like to see you lying there that way. You're carrying things too far. Have you ever tried to get to your feet with a sprained dignity? But Mrs. Watson scrambled up, right at the chair, and then sat back down on the floor. The booted foot stuck out in front of her and took another bite. She moved with great agility for such an old woman. At least Meg was reasonably sure that she was an old woman, and a very old woman at that. Mrs. Watson, her mouth full, ordered Mrs. Murray, Now pull while I'm already down! Quite calmly, as though this old woman and her boots were nothing out of the ordinary, Mrs. Murray pulled until the second boot relinquished the foot. This foot was covered with a blue and gray argyle sock, and Mrs. Watson sat there wriggling her toes, contentedly finishing her sandwich before scrambling to her feet. Ah, she said, that's ever so much better, and took both boots and shook them out over the sink. My stomach is full and I'm warm inside and out, and it's time I went home. Don't you think you'd better stay till morning? Mrs. Murray asked. Oh, thank you, dearie, but there's so much to do. I just can't waste time sitting around frivoling. It's much too wild a night to travel in. Wild nights are my glory, Mrs. Watson said. I just got caught in a downdraft and blown off course. Well, at least till your socks are dry. Wet socks don't bother me. I just didn't like the water squishing around in my boots. Now don't worry about me, lamb. Lamb was not a word one would ordinarily think of calling Mrs. Murray. I shall just sit down for a moment and pop on my boots and then I'll be on my way. Speaking of ways, pet, by the way, there is such a thing as a tesseract. Mrs. Murray went very white and with one hand reached backward and clutched at a chair for support. Her voice trembled. What did you say?